Welcome to MLI's latest edition of our podcast series, Pod Bless Canada. I'm Brian Lee Crowley, Managing Director of the Macdonald Laurier Institute. My guest today on Pod Bless Canada is noted constitutional scholar Dwight Newman. Dwight and I will be discussing the many legal, constitutional, and political issues surrounding the construction of the controversial Trans Mountain Pipeline from Alberta to British Columbia. Uh, But let me start by saying first that this podcast is being recorded on May 24th, and we are discussing the Kinder Morgan situation as it stands at that date. Many things will doubtless occur afterwards, but I I happen to think that the uh, insight that Dwight will offer us about the legal and constitutional uh, context will stand us in good stead no matter what the developments to come. Second, uh, let me say a word about Dwight. Uh, It's always important for listeners to know why they should pay attention to the conversation that we're having. And I think uh, uh, nothing could uh, be more important than uh, uh, hearing from Dwight about these issues. Dwight is a professor at the University of uh, Saskatchewan College of Law. He's been there since 2005. He's a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights and Constitutional and International Law. And most important of all, of course, he is a Monk Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. His research areas, of course, include Aboriginal law and Indigenous peoples' rights, constitutional uh, law, legal theory, private international law. Uh, He's a former Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. He has an impressive list of degrees, honours and appointments. And it's always a pleasure to talk to Dwight. Dwight, welcome to Pod Bless Canada. Well, thank you for having me as part of the podcast. Well, uh, Dwight, before we get on to um, the controversies uh, raging today around Kinder Morgan's Trans Mountain Pipeline project, let's set the stage a little bit by talking about some of the history of um, national infrastructure projects uh, that actually helped to create Canada in the first place. Uh, I, I suspect that one of the reasons that the federal government was given some of the powers it was given in 1867 was precisely because the Fathers of Confederation envisaged uh, the the necessity of national or nation-building uh, infrastructure. Um, uh, could you talk a little bit about this concept of uh, a, a vital federal responsibility and uh, vital federal power around national infrastructure. Well, I mean, indeed, the, the part of the history of Canada is very much uh, around these questions of how to build national infrastructure uh, so that Canada could function as a country, uh, so that confederation uh, made sense and uh, would bring new prosperity and new opportunities uh, to people across Canada. Uh, and a number of the colonies in 1867 were unwilling to confederate uh, if there weren't the construction of a Appropriate infrastructure uh, that uh, that provided for transport links. Um, some of them didn't join in 1867, uh, but joined in the years shortly thereafter, after securing appropriate guarantees around transportation infrastructure. So, for example, the Maritime Provinces, uh, several of them uh, were ready to join only on the basis of having an intercolonial railway. Um, uh, Prince Edward Island specifically also needed a, a constitutional guarantee of a of 
have a ferry link, which was later modified in the context of the construction uh, much later on of the Confederation Bridge. Um, the entry into Confederation of British Columbia was, of course, secured only with this very audacious project of constructing uh, a railway across Canada right through to, to the West Coast. Uh, and so, this is part of the history of, uh, of infrastructure being vital to Canada, being able to survive as a country in the context of all the pressures of a, a very powerful country to the south of us uh, and uh, the challenges of Canadian geography. And so uh, this was part, uh, the idea of constructing this kind of in infrastructure, there were specific constitutional guarantees on some of those particular projects, but there was also this more general power of the federal government in relation to future development of interprovincial or international transportation and communications infrastructure uh, and an ability of the federal government uh, to act in that area uh, was, was really essential to Confederation and to Canada surviving. So, w with that uh, as background, let's talk a little bit about the um the Trans Mountain Pipeline, just to uh, give a little bit of uh, context. My understanding is that we're talking about a pipeline that uh, essentially expands the capacity of exist an existing pipeline that was built in the 1950s uh, by Kinder Morgan, has been operated by them ever since. And this expansion project would roughly triple the uh, volume of oil that uh, can move through that pipeline from uh, oil fields in Alberta uh, to uh, Kinder Morgan's oil terminal in Burnaby, British Columbia, making it available both for markets in British Columbia and for export by tanker to uh, Asian and other markets. And um, the, the reason that uh, this, or, or one of the reasons why this pipeline is so important to Alberta is because uh, the current uh, infrastructure available to move oil within, uh, within Canada moves it almost exclusively to the United States, which uh, happens to be a market awash in oil, and therefore we get a discounted price for our oil, whereas we would get a much higher price were we able to export uh, the, um, the increasing production from the oil patch in Alberta in places like uh, Asia. So um, uh, clearly we have a very strong interest in Alberta, uh, not exclusively in Alberta, but a very strong interest in Alberta in seeing a higher price for their most important export. The same time we have uh, the government next door in British Columbia, having recently come to power, uh, amongst other things, uh, on the promise to do everything within the province's power to block the pipeline. And we, we might mention in that context that um, the British Columbia government is a minority government dependent on the support of three members of the Green Party for its, um, uh, for its parliamentary majority. And the Green Party is uh, deeply opposed to the pipeline. So, uh, if that's the project that we're talking about, uh, and um, uh, this is clearly a project that crosses provincial boundaries and therefore is uh, uh, perhaps something addressed by the issues that you talked about a moment ago, Dwight, about the federal power to uh, regulate uh, and uh, uh, oversee the construction of nationally significant infrastructure. Um, uh, first question that I'm sure many of our listeners are asking themselves is, 
um, does the province of British Columbia have any legal leg to stand on in an attempt to stop a a, a, a trans-provincial project that has been approved by Ottawa? I mean, is, is there a problem here that needs to be fixed or is British Columbia just whistling in the wind? Okay, uh, so uh, we're going to start to get a little bit technical here. Uh, and I think uh, we've heard a lot more in the Canadian media over the last few months than is usually the case about Section 92, Sub 10, Sub A of the Constitution. Uh, but that's the federal power uh, essentially over interprovincial uh, transportation and interprovincial communications infrastructure. Uh, there's very clear case law that that applies in the context of interprovincial pipelines. Um, uh, there's very clear federal jurisdiction in that area. Uh, and the decision to approve uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline was carried out within that jurisdiction of the federal government. Uh, there's always been some room for the provinces to end up granting permits in the context of uh, something related to, say, to pipeline construction. And the particular way in which uh, construction activities takes place will, in some instances, be subject to some uh, provincial permitting or licensing activities. Um, uh, in the normal course of events, that's that's no problem, because it's just finding the, the best way to go about carrying out a decision that's been made um, at the federal level. When you ask Ask the question, is there a legal leg for BC to stand on when it attempts to stop the pipeline? I mean, the answer there is actually a, a clear no. If the purpose of BC is to stop the pipeline, uh, and there's some evidence that that, that is the case, uh, then uh, th legal steps they take to do that are outside the jurisdiction of the province of British Columbia because they're in essence trying to replace the federal decision. Uh, but beyond that um, provincial laws have never been allowed to interfere um, in uh, excess of ways with, uh, with a federal entity uh, or a federal project. Uh, and there are some complicated constitutional doctrines that go into that. Uh, but in essence, when the interference becomes something that's really an interference as opposed to a legitimate exercise of uh, some uh, provincial powers that can coexist, um, then it becomes blocked by those constitutional doctrines, one of which is called interjurisdictional immunity. The other one uh, depends on the contents of federal legislation. It's called the doctrine of paramountcy. And if the province takes steps that conflict with federal legislation and regulation, um, then the province's steps don't operate uh, in, the, in the context of a conflict with a, a federal law or a federal regulation or a federal decision under a, a federal uh, legal regime. And in this case, the federal decision was to approve the pipeline. Uh, the province doesn't really have a legal leg to stand on in interfering with that. But they've nonetheless managed to create this atmosphere of seeming uncertainty around that. Uh, there are a few people that have argued that the doctrine of interjurisdictional immunity has changed a little bit, and that's a very technical sort of argument and uh, not one that's going to be on the, the nightly news. But uh, uh, that that is a pertinent discussion. Uh, my view is it 
it hasn't changed in the ways that are that are being claimed. Um, and in any event, federal paramountcy comes in uh, for a variety of different reasons. There really isn't a legal basis for British Columbia to interfere, but they've managed to create in some uh, contexts an impression that they could. Now, uh, let's just dig into that a little bit. Now, my understanding, and I, I, I'd be happy to be shown to be wrong, my understanding is that the, the, the primary uh, legal maneuver that British Columbia is using is to say, well, it may be that uh, Ottawa has the power to approve national infrastructure, but British Columbia has legal power to protect the environment of British Columbia and that, uh, uh, um, you know, we have, uh, we British Columbia have concerns about uh, the environmental impact of transporting bitumen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which would be in the pipeline. Uh, and uh, they are using that as their uh, legal cover, if you will, to uh, give uh, the at least the appearance that they have some legitimate uh, uh, constitutional uh, lever to use uh, against the federal government. I, what you're saying is, if I understand you correctly, is that yes, the the province in ordinary circumstances has jurisdiction over uh, over environmental matters within the province, but when it's a federally approved pipeline. It is federal environmental law that also uh, uh, is the law that is relevant to environmental protection in the context of that uh, infrastructure. Is that uh, is that correct? That's essentially right. Yeah. Uh, so both the federal and provincial governments end up having some areas of jurisdiction that get exercised in the context of environmental protection. So in the normal course of events, um, a province can exercise some jurisdiction in the environmental context. And even in the context of a federally approved pipeline, they would normally do that in a way that's, that's consistent with the, the basic federal decision. But the federal decision to approve the pipeline uh, is taken only after the consideration of massive amounts of evidence, um, uh, significant hearings about it, including on all of the environmental issues, and the Trans Mountain Pipeline was approved um, subject to a very large number of conditions uh, that were designed to address the different environmental considerations. And in the context of a federal uh, jurisdiction in this area, that's a federal decision to make then. So, uh so we've got federal jurisdiction under the Constitution, and within the context of that federal jurisdiction, we have various uh, bits of federal legislation, uh, you know, creating uh, the National Energy Board and environmental review panels and a whole series of other things, all of which uh, came into play in the approval of the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Uh, yet in the face of British Columbia's um, uh, continued opposition and uh, suggestion that they have some legal uh, jurisdiction here. Uh, there is now a piece of legislation before the Senate, which is intended to uh, provide further clarification of federal jurisdiction or to strengthen the claim of federal jurisdiction. Can you help us understand? Uh, I, I think it's uh, Bill S-245. Um uh, is is this important? Is this a, a belt and suspender strategy where uh, the federal government already has jurisdiction, but they're saying just so that nobody can be in any doubt, here's an extra piece of legislation 
stating the same thing? What, what, what is the role of an extra piece of federal law in this context? Okay, um, so I'm going to back us up just briefly and just say British Columbia seems to have managed to create uh, some uncertainty around whether it can interfere. And this has been dragging on uh, for months now. Um, uh, this suggestion that they were going to uh, to uh, enact their own legislation. And then they agreed that they would refer that over to the courts. Uh, and so they have a reference decision going to the BC Court of Appeal, where they'll ask the BC Court of Appeal to consider the constitutionality of uh, their proposed regulations, uh, regulating what travels through a pipeline. Um, and that's, uh, that's something that they managed to do very slowly to get that over to the court. And the court proceeding will take a long time. So they've managed to create this impression of uncertainty. Um, what uh, what got introduced in the the Senate ultimately uh, by uh, Senator Doug Black of Alberta is this bill that you've referenced, Bill S two forty five. It invokes uh, the federal what's called the federal declaratory power, and this is in Section ninety two sub ten sub C of the Constitution, and it, it shouldn't really be necessary um, to to have this legislation, but it it seems to have become so. Um, so it will be an additional assertion um, that, or a reaffirmation of federal jurisdiction in a sense uh, that uh, this uh, this work uh, this pipeline project is for the general advantage of Canada and those are those are legal words that invoke section 92 sub 10 sub C which uh, is an additional basis for federal jurisdiction over something uh, that is uh, to the general advantage of Canada and a project for the general advantage of Canada that will reinforce the the federal jurisdiction and passing the legislation uh, can be an additional way to make very clear that the federal government um, uh, intends to exercise its jurisdiction over the entirety of this uh, of this particular project. And as I say, it shouldn't have been necessary, um, but in the present circumstances, it seems to have become so. Um, as of today, when we're talking about this on May 24th, that bill has now passed third reading in the Senate. Um, uh, it started there. So now it goes to the House of Commons and it's being introduced in the House of Commons today. Uh, we'll have to see what, what comes of that. Uh, but uh, uh, going back a little ways here, um, uh, on the uh, in the context of Kinder Morgan indicating that they weren't sure if they could continue with the project in the face of current uncertainties and needing to know more by the end of May on that, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau had uh, issued a statement in which he said that the federal government would be pursuing legislative steps. Um, uh, to this point in time, none has been introduced in the House of Commons other than now uh, Bill S245. Uh, so it may be uh, the only piece of legislation that's uh, that's uh, an option, um, and it is a piece of legislation that could reinforce and reaffirm federal jurisdiction. Now, uh, uh, Dwight, in your um, uh, in your answer, you've uh, mentioned a couple of things that I think are very relevant to the discussion. First of all, uh, you said that uh, British Columbia, through its strategy, has very successfully introduced an element of doubt in the mind of many people about uh, you know who has the final decision making authority here and they've they've 
temporized or delayed very successfully so that they've now not only introduced uh, 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 finally some regulations, but they finally submitted those regulations to um, uh, a British Columbia court and asked for uh, the court to rule as to whether or not BC has uh, jurisdiction to issue those um, regulations. And, and this is, I think, part of a strategy on the part of British Columbia to just maximize confusion and drag out the process to a point where Kinder Morgan might abandon the project. And indeed, Kinder Morgan has now come forward and said, look, we're just so confused ourselves now about what's going on that uh, we want somebody, uh, ideally Ottawa, to make it crystal clear who's got the decision-making authority and to make it clear that they will use that authority to, to, to ensure that the pipeline can be built and that we need to have these assurances by the end of May. Now, as you say, it's the 24th of May when we're, uh, when we're uh, recording this podcast. So that gives uh, the federal government more or less a week uh, uh, in order to reassure Kinder Morgan. Is there anything else that Ottawa can or should do that might achieve that objective? One of the other things they could do would be some other type of legislation uh, that would go even further in setting out specific regulation of this uh, of this particular uh, project. Uh, but uh, um, that would just be a choice about the contents of the legislation to some extent. The other thing they've indicated that they uh, intend to do uh, is that they uh, will provide compensation uh, to uh, a company constructing this pipeline uh, for any delays arising from uh, from these uncertainties and uh, and delay tactics on the part of British Columbia, um, uh, it's uh, in some ways not an ideal solution that Canada would run its run the country on the basis that we're going to have so much legal uncertainty that we have to start compensating companies for the fact that there's legal uncertainty where they don't know if they can build their legally approved projects or not. But in the circumstances, it's obviously a step that the federal government may choose to take on a practical basis in relation to this particular project and may be an important step. Um, there might, of course, be other steps as yet uh, as yet undetermined if Kinder Morgan uh, does pull out. Um, maybe the federal government will end up building the pipeline, uh, but uh, that remains to be seen. The other thing I think that, they, uh, that the federal government almost has to do in the context of anyone building this pipeline, of course, uh, they have to provide some assurances on the environment in which this pipeline is going to be constructed. Uh, generate, uh, they have to generate an environment of credibility uh, that they're going to ensure that the pipeline can be built, even if um, some people take illegal steps against that pipeline. And some of those illegal steps are being uh, carried out, arguably, by, by government officials in, in British Columbia. But there are other illegal steps, of course, uh, that might be resorted to uh, by activists. And uh, the federal government needs to reassure um, uh, investors uh, uh, that are putting billions of dollars on the line that those kinds of illegal steps won't be allowed to, to interfere. Uh, there's one other... You're talking, you're, you're talking, sorry, Dwight, just, just to clarify for, for our listeners, 
you're talking about the potential for civil disobedience, about people chaining themselves to construction equipment or breaking down fences and vandalizing, uh, you know, the pipeline and so on. Is that, is that what you have in mind? Exactly. You're, you're putting it in uh, more uh, vibrant imagery, uh, but that's exactly the sort of thing that I'm, uh, that I'm talking about. And we've seen already the need to arrest uh, protesters. Um, uh, there might be protesters that, uh, that unfortunately go further uh, than just uh, close protesting, as it were, um, and uh, the the federal government needs to reassure people that it that it would deal with that. I will just add one other element that's that's a, a complication, and it's actually part of the law, and so it's a very different consideration. We're we're not talking about people acting illegally, um, but people actually acting to protect their legal rights, um, or or what they see as their legal rights, which is that there are also some outstanding court cases that probably we need to hear back on uh, um, in order to, to get full clarity. Uh, and that's a decision or a, a case that went, or a set of cases rather, that went to the Federal Court of Appeal uh, as well as to the BC Supreme Court back in the fall um, concerning a number of uh, claims on Indigenous consultation. Um, my view is probably the federal government will succeed in those cases, um, but we do need those court outcomes in order to uh, have full clarity uh, that there wasn't a, a breach of, uh, of the rights of Indigenous communities uh, that, that have brought those cases. So, uh, Dwight, I think uh, I'm right in saying that you've identified at least three major risks to uh, the Kinder Morgan pipeline. We've got the opposition of the British Columbia government. We've got the potential um, uh, of uh, court cases brought by uh, First Nations uh, seeking to enforce their rights to um, uh, consultation and uh, to have their uh, interests properly uh, looked to. Uh, and uh, we've got the, the risk of civil disobedience. Uh, there may be others, but it seems to me that those are the three principal ones that the project faces. Now, uh, you've mentioned that Ottawa has promised to compensate Kinder Morgan for uh, uh, delays caused by uh, the actions of the government of British Columbia, but I don't think that they've been explicit uh, that um, their offer of compensation extends to these other potential risks. And in any case, I, I don't know about you, uh, my experience of uh, people in the private sector and you know people who build big projects like the pipeline and so on is they're, they're actually not interested in being compensated for a failed project. They want to get the project done. And, you know, being told, well, if we can't, if we can't get it done, we'll, we'll pay you off seems to me to be a non-answer to the problem that the pipeline is trying to get addressed. Uh, well, that's right. I, I don't think that that's a very constructive answer, uh, particularly thinking of it in, in the longer term. Um, but uh, it might be something that's done on an ad hoc basis here, and we'll have to see how it, how it figures as part of what overall happens here. Um, but uh, just earlier on, you referenced um, uh, the uh, the economic implications of this uh, of this. Uh, project and part of that, part of those implications 
Nations uh, are indeed for the province of Alberta and its ability to export uh, a product and to receive uh, a fair world market price for that rather than a discounted price. Some of the other implications, though, are also to the extent that Alberta contributes within um, the uh, the federal equalization formula. That has implications for other provinces across the country, even just when you're talking about um, whether Alberta does or doesn't receive a fair market price um, for its oil rather than a discounted market price. But one of the other really big implications down the road here um, is whether investment in Canada um, whether investors in Canada see it as a place uh, with a viable investment climate. And if uh, I mean, Kinder Morgan's invested a billion dollars already in this project, if they reach the point where they have to cancel it because they don't know if a legally approved project can actually still proceed, that's a very dangerous prospect uh, for investment throughout Canada in any kind of project where we're looking for uh, for uh, for investment. And Canada has a large geography and a small population. Um, uh, the, the implication is to develop uh, in the ways that Canada can, uh, we need capital investment. And if we run a country in a way that creates a lot of legal uncertainty, um, um, and that makes it impossible for foreign investors to know if they can proceed with their projects. Um, simply offering to provide some indemnification or compensation on that uh, is not really an ideal way to proceed. Maybe it's part of the ad hoc solution in this one instance, but the longer term issue is that uh, greater legal certainty needs to be achieved on a, a number of uh, points here. Um, and the federal government really ideally ought to be taking some steps uh, to do that in the context even of this project in order to set a tone for the future. Well, and I, I think it's important, Dwight, to mention that uh, Kinder Morgan will not be seen by foreign investors in isolation. It's one of four major pipeline proposals that have been before the Canadian uh, and American authorities in the case of um, uh, Keystone XL uh, uh, for many, many years. And uh, two of those projects have now failed after uh, Enbridge invested more than a billion dollars in trying to get its uh, Northern Gateway pipeline approved. And uh, the uh, Energy East proposal uh, by TransCanada Pipe, uh, which also invested hundreds of millions of dollars uh, uh, in that project, uh, it failed. Uh, you know, we can uh, have a discussion about the reasons, but I think it would be fair to say that a, a lack of regulatory clarity and, uh, and um, commitment by the federal government was an important part of that decision. Uh, the federal government's own policy decisions killed uh, the Northern Gateway Pipeline, the, uh, the, uh, the ban on a pipeline through the Great Bear Rainforest, the ban on uh, uh, offshore oil tankers uh, made that project uh, uh, impossible. So, um, people are looking at a lot of money that's been invested in trying to get a number of uh, these projects going, and uh, the track record is very poor. And I, I'll just mention for what it's worth that um, while the natural resource economy is only about um, uh, 12, 13 percent of the uh, economy as a whole. It's about the same size as manufacturing. Uh, the natural resource economy represents one half of all business investment intentions. 
in other words, uh, it's a huge source of capital investment. And we know that future living standards depend on capital investment being made possible today. So th- th- these are big issues for Canada. Now, um, uh, Dwight, since you quite properly mentioned Alberta, we spend a lot of time talking about Ottawa and British Columbia, but the the, the other party that's very much in play here is Alberta because it's Alberta's resources that Ottawa is trying to get to market. Uh, and this is where um, some very interesting issues arise with respect to free trade within Canada, uh, because uh, uh, Alberta, looking at British Columbia's behavior, uh, has been, uh, I think it's fair to say, rather upset uh, that uh, a neighboring province is trying to obstruct uh, Alberta's efforts to uh, get the, the best price for its uh, exports. And they've threatened uh, various kinds of trade sanctions against uh, British Columbia, including turning off the oil taps and uh, uh, reducing the supply of oil to British Columbia. Can you, if we shifted gears here a little bit and talked about the legal and constitutional framework for trade within Canada, um, does Alberta have tools to work with here if it wanted to use trade as a stick to beat British Columbia with? So within Canada, of course, um, interprovincial trade as international trade is within federal jurisdiction. Um, there are a lot of, uh, meant to be a lot of constraints on provinces uh, interfering uh, with uh, with interprovincial trade. And if they set out to do so, um, uh, their, uh, their legislation that sets out to do so uh, is subject to uh, some significant uh, uh, legal risks and legal consequences. Um, that said, we've had recently, uh, uh, in terms of free trade within the country, uh, a very unfavorable decision from the, the Supreme Court of Canada in the Camo case, uh, which had the prospect of giving a new life to a constitutional provision, uh, Section 121, uh, that specifically was designed to try to assure free trade within Confederation and in Canada. Uh, but there, there still are a lot of constraints on what provinces can do that, that interferes if they set out to do so. That said, in the resource context, there are some additional legal rights held by, uh, by provinces, both as legislators under Section 92A uh, of the Constitution and some other parts of Section 92, um, and also as owners of those resources. And Alberta has adopted legislation under which people are talking about how it could turn off the taps uh, to British Columbia, um, there are ways they could turn off the taps that would be unconstitutional. Uh, there are ways they could turn off the taps that would be constitutional and that would carry out that legislation uh, in some uh, strategic ways. Uh, Saskatchewan has also moved uh, towards the adoption of similar kinds of legislation. Um, uh, Premier Notley recently decided not to go to the Western Premier's conference uh, because of the situation over the pipeline. There's a real division that's breaking out between provinces in the context of these issues. Part of this is is uh, part of the very reason I think that uh, that the federal government was meant to have jurisdiction uh, over interprovincial uh, projects so that one province couldn't interfere and harm another province and then have that province uh, want to respond in some way. And we're in a very unfortunate circumstance 
moments here uh, where we could uh, could uh, spiral towards some very negative consequences uh, unless some resolution can be reached. Well, uh, Dwight, I'm I'm sorry to say that uh, I think we're out of time for this podcast, but uh, uh, as we've already said uh, several times, uh, it being May 24th, and uh, there are many twists and turns that may yet occur in the uh, story of the Kinder Morgan pipeline, we may have a chance to revisit these issues in another podcast soon. Uh, but in the meantime, let me uh, thank you, Dwight Newman, uh, uh, Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute and Professor at the University of Saskatchewan College of Law, for what has been a very enlightening conversation about the, uh, the legal, constitutional and political context for the uh, huge national debate going on right now around the Kinder Morgan pipeline. I'd like to thank Dwight, uh, on behalf of all of our listeners, and uh, to thank our listeners for uh, tuning in to uh, this edition of Pod Bless Canada. I'm Brian Lee Crowley. On behalf of the McDonald Laurie Institute, thanks very much for listening.